verses that uh, we're going to talk about this morning. You have your sermon notes, I encourage you to take them out. Just a snippet of what it is we're going to talk about. We'll read the broader context in a moment. But I want to look at those two verses. But just as he who called you is holy, so be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy, because I am holy, God says. You and I both know that Christians aren't perfect. We've all read the bumper sticker, Christians are forgiven, but not perfect. But most followers of Jesus that I know really do want to do the right thing, right? I mean, we want to do our best to please God. I'm, I, I, I can't even imagine that, that any of you in this room would have gotten up this morning saying, I am so looking forward to sinning today. I mean, I want to sin like crazy today. I mean, tomorrow I can't wait to go to work. I'm going to cheat all day long. I'm going to lie all day long. I'm going to steal all day long. I cannot wait for tomorrow. It's going to be the worst day of my life, but I'm going to enjoy it so much. I mean, did any of you wake up like that? I know you work with people who you feel like wake up like that. But none of us wake up like that. We really want to do our best to do what is right. We want to do our best to please God. Then we read a section of scripture like this and we see that he sets the bar so high. When he said, be holy for I am holy, we find ourselves even saying and, and at least thinking, that's hard to do. Because to be holy in an unholy world is probably one of the greatest challenges that you and I as believers and followers of Christ have to deal with. It's not always easy to do the right thing. And even if it's not always easy to do the right thing, it's certainly not always easy to be holy. Because holiness to us exudes perfection. And be holy as I am holy, God says. That, that raises the bar as high as I can possibly imagine it being when God compares that holiness to himself. And I know I'm not there. Now, positionally in Christ, I am thrilled that because of Jesus, I can be. But when I look at it from a face value, I find myself saying, God, are you kidding how on earth will I ever be holy like you are holy? I know my own junk. I know my own stuff. I know my own struggles. The temptations on a daily basis are overwhelming. All I have to do is check out at the checkout counter to a local grocery store and see stuff I don't want to see. Let alone find myself constantly combating that on a regular basis with people around me in a world that certainly isn't desiring at all for me to pursue holiness. Temptations are everywhere, and I find myself sometimes either ignoring it or, if I'm not even careful, becoming numb to this desire to be holy because there's so much around me that pushes in another direction. Of all things, in the middle of the preparation for these messages that we're going to be in in the next three weeks, someone gave me about three months ago a book called Soul Detox, written by Craig Rochelle. And Craig is, how many of you have the, the U version on your iPad or your iPhone? A few of, I'm telling you, if you, don't, if, you have, if you have an iPad or an iPhone, how many of you waited in line to get the iPhone 5? I mean, you camped out overnight. I was so excited I couldn't stand it. <laughs> you believe it? I mean, people camp out for three days to get another phone. That's just more people that are going to get in touch with you. Why would anybody want to do it? I'm telling you, if you don't, if you have an iPhone or an iPad, you ought to have U version on it. Craig's the, the, the founder of that, uh, Life Church TV, and it just does a great job of being able to help us understand the Word and being able to have it with us all the time. But he's written a book called Soul Detox, and, and Craig is one of those 
pastors that like to push the envelope. You know, they like to say things to get people to stir up every once in a while and kind of say some edgy things or some edgy jokes in, in, in a context to try to invite people, encourage people, and make them feel comfortable. And, but, but every once in a while, he likes to push the envelope until one day he said, I found myself wanting to, to share a joke that was a little off, but then I looked down and saw my seven-year-old daughter sitting there. All of a sudden, the Spirit of God said, why do you want to do that? He talks about growing up in a context with parents who constantly reminded him, put your coat on so you don't catch a cold, wash your hands so you don't get sick, don't get into the water until 30 minutes after you eat, and he said, I still don't get that one. They did everything they possibly could to keep us safe, but they poisoned us with secondhand smoke on a regular basis. So I went to college, I didn't even think about it anymore until I walked into my room and my roommate said, you reek. For the first 18 years of my life, I lived in a cloud of secondhand smoke, oblivious to how it coated my skin, lungs, and throat. Not only did I smell like a chimney, I had unknowingly inhaled a poison on a daily basis. My parents eventually overcame that, but I found myself dealing with the residual of that. And then he says this, I'm convinced that many of us are living in the same kind of dangerous trap in our spiritual health. We know something doesn't feel quite right. We, we know we're not growing closer to God as we'd like to be. We're followers of Christ, and we really want to be, but we can't quite put our fingers on why we're not there yet. Even though we believe in God, we want to please Him, we find it hard to serve Him passionately and consistently. We want to move forward spiritually, but we find ourselves running against the wind. We want more, and we know there's more. We just can't seem to find it. Why do so many well-meaning Christians take one spiritual step forward and then slide back one or two? We long to do more for God and please Him in every way and live our lives fuller and fuller in Him. But we find ourselves having things that hold us back in that growing relationship with God. I found that people embrace harmful relationships, consume toxic media, live with addictive habits, and remain oblivious to the long-term effects. The way we live, we think, is perfectly fine, normal, and harmless, and even positive, and then we find ourselves in an environment where it's taken its toll on us. Some people don't even want to take an honest look at the way they live, claiming what, what you don't know won't hurt you, but that is not true. And then he lists a story about wanting to go to a movie that everybody was going to called The Devil's Advocate, and by the end of it, finding himself saying, why in the world did I want to see that? Now he says, I don't believe that we should draw a line to cultural sand and live in a sanitized little bubble. On the other hand, we just can't immerse ourselves in every aspect of the world around us and let culture determine our lifestyle and our habits. Most filmmakers will never worry about the impact of their movie on your soul. Most pop tunes on iTunes don't care whether or not your faith is built up or you draw closer to God. It is our responsibility to determine what we let into our lives and what we keep out. If you're a Christian, wouldn't you agree that there's got to be a line somewhere between right and wrong? A way to discern what pleases God and moves us closer to Him instead of further away? Could it be that we become so desensitized to what is right or wrong or good or evil, pleasing or displeasing to our holy God? It is possible that we consider normal entertainment, but it's really dangerous to our souls. Do you ever think that what we consider laughable, entertaining, or simply fun... God might find heartbreaking. For those of us who follow Jesus, everything we do, no matter where we go, should reflect our love and our commitment to God. I find it interesting that that's where I'm at in 1 Peter chapter 1. Turn there with me. You all have a Bible or an iPhone or an iPad or something, but I want you to be in the Word. 
We put it on the screen every once in a while, and I really value that, but I want you to be in the Word. I want you to have it with you. I spend 10 to 14 hours, depending on the sermon, in preparation for this. You've got 30 minutes to process it. One of the reasons my notes are much more extensive than most notes is that they're, they're written from the context of my, my own personal uh, script here so that you can really process the information that you're hearing. So what Peter said, 1 Peter chapter 1, beginning at verse 13. Therefore, with minds that are alert and fully sober, set your hope on the grace to be brought to you when Jesus Christ has revealed it is coming. As obedient children, do not conform to the evil desires that you lived in in ignorance. But just as he who called you is holy, be holy in all you do. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. Since you call on a father who judges each person's work impartially, live out your time as foreigners here in relevant, reverent fear. For you know that it wasn't with imperishable things such as gold and silver that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your ancestors, but with the precious blood of Jesus. We're going to celebrate that next Sunday morning. A lamb without blemish or defect. He chosen... He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him you believed in God who raised him from the dead and glorified him. And so your faith and your hope are in God. Now that you have purified yourselves by obeying the truth, so that you have a sincere love for each other, love one another deeply from the heart. For you've been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable, through the living and enduring word of God. For all people are like grass, all their glory is like the flowers of the field. Grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of the Lord endures forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. One of the things that I love to do, especially because I have the U version of the Bible and it gives you the opportunity every once in a while to do a parallel version, I love to read another section of Scripture out of Eugene Peterson's The Message. I don't know if you did that last Sunday morning when John was reading out of Psalms. When he read that Psalm 77 passage, you ought to read that in The Message. This is what he says at the beginning of the message in this particular context here and the one that I just read to you. This is what he said. Roll up your sleeves. Put your mind in here. Be totally ready to receive the gift that is coming when Jesus arrives. Don't lazily slip back into those old grooves of evil, doing what you just feel like doing. You know better than that. As obedient children, let yourselves be pulled into a way of life shaped by God's life, a life energetic and blazing with holiness. God said, I'm holy, so you be holy. You call out to God for help, and he helps. He's a good father that way. But don't forget, he's also a responsible father, and he will not let you get by with sloppy living. Your life is a journey you must travel with deep consciousness of God. It costs God plenty to get you out of the dead-end, empty-headed life that you grew up in. He paid with Christ's blood, you know. When you read a section of Scripture like this, the thing you have to remember is Peter is writing to people who are going through really difficult times. Ted talked about it a few weeks ago, and John gave a powerful demonstration of what it's like to go through those particular times. And that's where these people are at. Many of them came out of a great church experience where things couldn't have gotten better. A couple of weeks ago, I set the stage for that for you out of Acts chapter 2, verses 42 to 47, when they were loving what God was doing. They were loving coming to church. They came on a regular basis. They came every day if they could. People were coming to faith in Christ. They were sharing their goods with everyone. It couldn't have been better in church. And now, all of a sudden, they got to leave that context and go out there. And it's been tough. And many of you know what it's like to have a good feeling in church. You really want to please God. You're having a 
blast serving him and praising him and singing glory to his name and you're, you're hearing the word, you know how it challenges us and you know what you need to do and the kind of life you need to live. And then you get up from these seats and you go out there somewhere and you, you've got a good afternoon with your kids or your family and, and then all of a sudden Monday comes. And you're going, boy, I, you know, it was great. It was, easy to be a, it was easy to be holy there. It was easy to follow Christ there. But man, now, brother, do you know what I work? Do you know what I have to live with? Do you know my neighborhood? Do you know my coworkers? And to be honest with you, I don't. And I know some of you live in the most ungodly environment you can imagine. And you wrestle with this because you find it easy to be holy and love God with all your heart and sing glory to his name here. But then you've got to go out there. And they could care less that you follow Christ. And they could care less about your holiness. But he does. That's where these people are at. Life couldn't have been better in Jerusalem at that particular time in Acts 2, but now here they are isolated and afraid. Many of them are new believers in Christ. Remember in Acts chapter 2 when thousands responded to the gospel and now here they are by chapter 8 dispersed around the world and they're all, many of them are new believers in Christ. They, they, do, they really want to please God. They're uncertain about their own future, let alone pleasing Him. But here they are. And Peter's giving them some advice, some great advice in your sermon notes, some great encouragement, and he also gives them a very stern warning, which is what every spiritual father ought to do. The segment here in this particular section of Scripture really carries over into chapter 2. When the word was originally written, it wasn't obviously divided into verses and chapters, but this one, context goes all the way to probably the middle of chapter 2. We're going to stay this morning and next Sunday probably just in chapter 1. One of the main themes of this passage of Scripture in your sermon notes is the difference salvation brings to the life of a believer. You see, when I come to faith in Christ, it's not just a new kind of music that I listen to. It is not just a different way of spending a weekend or a different kind of church that I attend. When I come to faith in Christ, this is a whole new way of thinking and a very different lifestyle. When you and I come to faith in Christ, the difference is not just the fact that I spend Sunday now in church when I used to do other things with it. But when I come to faith in Christ, it is a whole different way of thinking. It is a whole different lifestyle. This section of Scripture in your notes is an ethical reflection on the different salvation makes in the life of the believer. Here in four different areas, all the way through Scripture, and you always have to read all the Scripture, in a number of other areas, here in four. Number one, what they hope in. The promise of an amazing future that we talked about a few weeks ago in verses 3 to 12. It also talks about how they live. It's a call to holiness, godliness, verses 15 to 16, being a reflection of the character and nature of God. It tells them also, number three, what to fear. He encourages them, and we'll talk more about it today and next week, but encourages them to have a healthy fear of a holy God. And I think sometimes we don't always do that well. We have a fear, but not always a healthy fear. And depending on how you grew up, if you had a dad that was pretty much of a taskmaster or pretty hard to please, I had a dad, no matter how hard I tried, I couldn't please him. Sometimes we, we project that into how we see God. And there are a lot of people, when I talk to you about fear in God, you have no problem about that because you're afraid of your dad. Or you've been afraid of your dad, and that set the stage for your life. But I'm talking about a healthy fear, a recognition that, as we say today, I stand before a holy God someday. I want to live a life that will please him. And number four, how to love. 
how to love. He challenges them to a commitment to love each other. He's basically trying to help him understand how to live as believers as a minority in a world that may oppress, exclude, abuse, or ignore them. And that's huge to understand. Peter is trying to help them understand how to live as believers as a minority in a world that may oppress, exclude, abuse, or ignore them. How many of you feel when you go out into the world every day, feel like the majority of the people around you believe the same way? You feel like the minority. And, and, and everybody else is going another direction. And Peter is trying to help us understand how to live like that. He follows a pattern throughout the Bible, and that is this. Theology prompts ethics. In other words, this. Your belief about God and your experience with God will determine how you live, what you value, and impact and drive your behavior and belief in what is right and wrong. That is a huge statement. That's why it's in your notes. Your belief about God, your experience with God. That's why I said a moment ago about how you view God in relationship to your dad. Your belief about God, your experience with God will determine how you live, what you value, and impact and drive your belief about what is right and wrong. Your belief will determine your behavior, and your behavior will determine or tell me what you believe. Your belief will determine your behavior, and your behavior will reveal what you believe. Simply put, actions speak louder than words. Sound familiar? James said the same thing when we said it to him a year or so ago. He said, don't just tell me what you believe. I want to see how it plays out in your life. Don't just tell me that you're a believer in Christ. Don't just tell me that you go to church. I want to see how it plays out in your life. I want to see what a difference Jesus makes in your attitude, your behavior, how you spend your money, how you spend your resources, how you spend your time, how you react, how you respond to people. I really want to see that Christianity makes that big of a difference. That is the thing that either repels or invites people into Christianity. It is the Spirit of God who draws them, absolutely. But one of the greatest things that either repel people from Christianity or draw them toward Christianity is how they see us playing it out in our lives and the difference Christianity makes in our everyday experience. If you were to come up to my office, and any of you are welcome to come up to my office, every time in all the years that I've been here, people come in and are going, I feel like I'm in the principal's office. I don't know why. You're welcome to come up. But if you were to come up into my office, I wouldn't have to tell you that I enjoy hunting or collect swords. People walk into my office. I had a guy come in a few weeks ago and said, this is the most amazing office I've ever seen in my life. I never expected this to be a senior pastor's office. There's weapons all over the place. There's stuff all over the wall. There's heads and mounts and tear and turkey and bear and everything else you can imagine. I wouldn't have to tell you if you came into my office that I hunted. You'd see it, right? And you'd say, okay, you know, this guy plays piano. Nothing. <laughs> Nothing wrong with that. You'd know what I do. Steelers playing today? Yeah. How, how do I know that some of you are Steeler fans? You got Steeler jerseys. And, and as the season gets along and as we get better and we improve, especially as we get into the playoffs, there'll be Steeler jerseys all over the place. You don't have to tell me that you're a Steeler fan. I just know it when I see it. Do you have to have a Harley rider tell you that he's a Harley rider? You can see it. You can figure it out. You know what they look like. You can see that. Jesus said, let me tell you something. You're going to know which ones are mine. They don't even have to say a lot. You, you'll know which ones are mine. One verse is by their love for each other. There's only one verse. You're going to know which ones are mine by the demonstration of the power of the Spirit in their life. You're going to know which ones are mine by the demonstration of the power of the Spirit in their church. 
Jesus said, you'll know which ones are mine. Most of them don't have to say a word. Let's look at the text. Verse 13, therefore. Now, anytime you see therefore in Scripture, you know it's there for a reason, right? The word therefore is for a reason. In most cases, it always points back to what was just said. In light of what I just said, this is now what I want you to do. In this case, he points back to the amazing gift of salvation we've received from Christ and all the blessings that come with it. Think with me for a moment. When you and I come to faith in Christ, we get, this is just a few, we get forgiveness, a chance to start over, amazing grace whenever you need it, a God who hears our every prayer, a friend in Jesus, friends in the family of God, a Holy Spirit who empowers us for any challenge, a Holy Spirit who prays with words and feelings that we could never express and then takes him to the throne of God himself, the ability to take on the demons of hell, and oh, by the way, heaven too. Now, who wouldn't want that? But isn't that amazing? Aren't you, doesn't that blow you away that we get all that in Jesus? Forgiveness and grace and an opportunity to start over again. A God who hears us and loves us. Spirit who empowers us, who gives us the ability to take on the demons of hell and eternal life. Think about this for a moment. You and I are born, you ever think about this? You and I are born on this side of the cross. In God's amazing sovereignty, you and I are born on this side of Calvary. We could have been born back then in, in, in 6 B.C. or 30 B.C. or 500 B.C. wondering when is it ever going to come about. This promise that I've been hearing forever, my sins washed away, I've got to keep taking these lambs and doves and, and all of this to the, throne, or to, the, to the temple to somehow hope that my sins will be forgiven. I'm tired of the battle, I'm tired of losing, I'm tired of the struggle. But here you and I, are born on this side of the cross, we know that our sins have been forgiven. We know that our sins have been paid for. We know that Jesus Christ paid the debt. We know that Satan's been defeated on the cross. And we know that we have an amazing future to look forward to. Look at what he said. Even demons or even angels are jealous of what we know. So in light of that, Peter said, get ready. Be strong, stay strong, stay focused, stay committed. Don't let down, don't give up, don't lose hope. A phrase, prepare your minds for action, or gird up your minds in other translations, is hard enough for us to conceive in, in our mind as to what he meant. But to them, when he used that phrase, it was a, a word picture. They all had robes on, and if I was smart, I would have had one on today so you'd get the picture. But they all had robes on, and basically it was a matter of pulling up those dangling robes, all the stuff that would tangle your feet up, refers to that a little bit in Hebrews, but all the things that would keep you from running well. And he said, pull them up, pull them tight around your waist, and get ready for battle. Don't let things dangle down around you that are going to keep you from moving ahead. It's an Old Testament picture of encouragement to get ready to see God work. So many times throughout the Old Testament where God would say to the children of Israel, hey, get ready. Man, be ready. God's going to do some amazing things. Get ready to see God work. And, and, and don't just sit idly by, ho-humming, thumbing, our, going like this and, and waiting for life to go by. But get ready for action. Get ready to see God do some amazing things. Be sober in this context here. Not only forbids physical drunkenness, which is all the way through Scripture, but also indicates, since the word is talking about attitudes of the mind, to not let our mind wander into any kind of mental intoxication or addiction which inhibits our spiritual alertness 
or the laziness of mind which lulls Christians into sin through carelessness. Be aware of what's going on around us. Don't just let your mind go, but think clearly of, of the impact of a movie or a book or a video or a clip or a magazine or, or whatever it is. Be aware of what's going on around me. Don't just go through life unaware of the impact that some of those things are going to have on me or the language of another person or the, the things that I'm watching or things that I'm doing. Peter uses the same words in chapter 4 and chapter 5 when he says, be ready, be alert, because I'm telling you, your enemy Satan's out to kill you. He's out to destroy you. Make sure you're aware of that. Maybe a lot of things that we're for not careful of, even good things like a career and recreation and relationships and, and all of those things can, if we're not careful, can be used for the wrong thing. Craig, in a book that I referred to a moment ago, Soul Detox, said most of life's battles are won and lost in the mind. Our thoughts are either focused on what's eternal, life-changing, and true, or lost in the details of temporary, temporal false beliefs. If you're a Christian, you're fully aware of the battle between your flesh, your earthly desires, and your spirit, your heavenly desires, and that ongoing battle between flesh and spirit usually fought out in the mind. For example, a husband doesn't wake up one morning and decide to cheat on his wife that day. Instead, it's a gradual process of sliding away thought by thought that allows him to begin that adulterous relationship, usually mentally, and then relationally, and then physically. We want to win the physical battle. We better take control of the spiritual battlefield. That's why Proverbs says, even in the Old Testament, Paul refers to it again in a new, carefully guard your thoughts. And Paul will say in the New Testament, take every thought captive. Like a firewall protecting your computer, you've got to remain vigilant against Satan's lies that threaten to corrupt our hard drive of our mind. You've got to know what we're fighting against. We've got to know what we're fighting for. And we have to know how to spot the enemy. Paul makes it clear over and over again that we've got weapons that we've got to fight with and we've got to use them for the glory of God. Weapons of prayer and faith and the word of God and relationships in the family of God. We've got to use those weapons to win the battle of the mind. Otherwise, we'll succumb to the battle of the soul. Four that many people deal with. One is pessimism, which always produces that chronically negative thoughts, always seeing the glass half empty. Anxiety, which usually manifests itself in fearful and wonderful, worried thoughts. Bitterness, which pollutes our thinking and criticism, which creates destructive thoughts about other people. You've got to fight against those and not let the enemy take control. Set your hope fully in verse 11. <coughs> as, verse, as it goes through there, <coughs> is a term that refers to an expectation that is much stronger than a vague sense of going to heaven someday, or I hope I get to heaven, or I can't wait for heaven, but a real sense of a confident expectation regarding heaven, a strong sense, strong enough that it impacts my behavior. That is important to understand. Knowing that I'm going to go to heaven someday and stand before a holy God not only encourages Christians to keep on going to difficult circumstances, it encourages me to make sure that my priorities are in line with that thought someday that I will stand before God. That's why he says, I want you to have a, a healthy fear of a holy God. You've, you and I have both have to believe. Not just think that it's out there somewhere. No, I'm going to go to heaven someday. It's going to be great because I'm tired of this life or whatever that may look like. But I'm going to stand before God someday. 
And man, I don't want to shuffle my feet and have my head looked down and not be able to look him in the eye. I'm going to stand before a holy God someday, and because of the blood of Jesus Christ, I'm redeemed and set free, and because of all the resources he's given me, I can live the life he's calling me to, and I want to be able to know that I've done that. You're thinking in your lifestyle, my thinking, my lifestyle, my behavior can't be influenced by the world or by what I used to do or what they say is right or what's politically correct or what you may feel like doing but what you know is right to do. And how do you know what's right to do? You're in the Word of God. I'm in constant communication with the Father and I'm extremely sensitive to the voice of His Spirit. And when He speaks, I listen. And I move in that direction. Be holy in all you do, he said. Speaks of a pattern of life that transforms every moment in your notes, every thought, every action, every day. In a consistent, continual awareness of what I'm up against and what I want to become. And that is more like Christ. I'm telling you. This is the biggest battle of my life. I'm not giving you stuff that I've already mastered. I'm giving you stuff that I'm wrestling with when I read it, when I look at it. I'm recognizing this incredible battle for my mind that constantly comes at me day after day with negativism and thoughts and all kinds of junk that push in a number of, dire number of directions. And I read this word and I know I'm going to stand before him and give an account of the life that I've lived and how I've served and how I've loved and how I've led my family. And how I've led this church. But I'm telling you, without an awareness of this, we'll ho-hum go through life. And then someday stand before him and wish we would have known. Or wish we'd have been told. And my responsibility is to make sure we fully understand. And Peter's responsibility was to make sure they fully understand what God was calling them to. I'm going to talk about it for the next couple of weeks and spend next Sunday morning and finishing in communion. But this is an enormous challenge. I think without a doubt one of the greatest challenges in our spiritual lives because of all that we're going to face when we go out there. All that I face on a regular basis. Depression, temptation, the list is endless. Attitudes that are unpleasing to God, responses to people. But this is the word of God that isn't changed. It's powerful cuts it divides us up it lets us see down deep in the soul and we can't ignore that but the beauty is that we can see the changes that need to be made and know all the resources that are available to us and take them in and let god do what he wants to do in our lives it begins with an awareness and then a choice a decision to say god that's what i want and that's where i'm going by the power of your spirit i make myself available to you I love Paul's words in Corinthians when he says, in my weakness, he became my strength. You know one thing that means? It means when I give up, God takes over. And I love that because that's what it really starts with. Lord, I don't know what to do. I cannot do this. I can't live this life and I can't be holy. I can't be positionally in Christ because of Jesus, but I can't live holy. God said, great, that's a great starting place. Let me take you from there, and let's work together. Father, I thank you for your word. Oh, I love your word. As I see at the end of this section when 
I realize that it's the one thing that will last the test of time. And so we just simply commit ourselves to you. We ask in the name of Jesus that you will speak to us, speak to our hearts, more to our, to our souls, the depth of our beings, to, to come to a place of honest surrender, of saying the call is overwhelming, but I really want to strive towards it. And so, Father, we want to please you. So we make ourselves available, and we just ask in the name of Jesus, by the power of the Spirit, that you will speak, and that we will hear, and then we will speak, and be honest about what we need you to do in our lives. In the name of Jesus.